Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass the herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves, with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas. And let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, 
I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every herb for, for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go before our Father once again in prayer. Oh, Father, as we look once again at the opening chapter of your word which you have given to us, we recognize that your word in this particular part of the Bible has been greatly attacked. It's one of the, the foremost places that, that those outside of the church have chosen to try to undermine the authority of your word and try to charge your word with error. Lord, we, we do pray that you would give us eyes to see, to understand your word, that we would stand on the truth of your word, knowing that you yourself, as the eternal God, you have borne witness to us of how we got here. And this is the surest word that we have, the surest way to discover our own origins and the origins of this entire universe. Help us, O Lord, to trust in this rather than what those who really have nothing but empty speculation are saying against it. We ask this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. There was a time in college where I was trying to share the gospel with a friend, and this person appeared to be willing to discuss things related to the Bible with me, and a lot of things were making sense to him, but then he went to his primary objection, the reason why he did not think he could believe that there was a God, and the reason why he could not believe that the Bible was true, and and the answer that he gave, the objection that he gave was this. Well, doesn't science teach something different about the way the world got here and about the way we got here? Is there really, isn't evolution true? And if evolution is true, wouldn't it also be true that the Bible is wrong? And so for him, there is no reason for him to think that he ought to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior if he could not also believe that the words which were spoken in Genesis 1 were true. And for him, if evolution was true, then Genesis 1 is not true. And if Genesis 1 is not true, then why must I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ has come to die for sins? And now when he placed, when he put that objection before me, I at that point had a decision to make. This was at a time where I hadn't thought through these issues very clearly, but I had a decision to make. Am I going to try to harmonize the view of secular science in terms of the way we got here, creation, with the view of the Bible? Or am I going to declare that I believe that the Bible does in fact teach something different, that the Bible is true rather than the claims of the secular scientists? Those are really the two options. Will I try to harmonize on the one hand, or will I try to say, no, the Bible is, is in fact teaching something 
different? That is really the big question in terms of the way that we relate to science today, particularly with regard to this issue of creation. And it, and now there are some who will say that this issue is not important. This particularly this morning, we're going to be looking at the age of the earth. Does the Bible teach that the earth is young or does the Bible teach that the earth is old? The position that is saying that the earth is young is a position where you would say, we believe that the Bible is teaching something fundamentally different than what the secular scientists are saying. If you say that the earth is old, you'd be saying there is a way to harmonize the views of the secular scientists and their view of origins with the teaching of scripture. Now on this issue, there are many who will say it's not important. As long as we believe that God created out of nothing, that he is the one who sovereignly did it, then that is all that we need. And, and without question, that is probably a more important issue than this particular one we'll discuss today. If you were here last week, you'll know that we, we began, we spent an entire sermon looking at that first verse and saying how, showing how this is the verse which teaches that God did create all things out of nothing. But nevertheless, it is still an important issue that we would understand how we are to answer the objection of the secular scientists. Are we going to say that the Bible teaches something fundamentally different or are we going to try to harmonize? Now, if you just think about what is at stake here, Calvin said that there's two ways in which we know God. We know him as our creator and we know him as our redeemer. Those are the two main ways. Now, if we compare that with what the secular, the secular world is teaching, we'll see that there's really no comparison between doctrines of salvation, doctrines of redemption. There is no corresponding doctrine of redemption for secular science. However, there is a competing theory of origins. So this really is, in terms of a scientific objection, there's really no objection that can be made with respect to our doctrine of redemption. There's no other theory of redemption that the secular world puts forward. It's not needed. In the one place where there, where there are a teachings related to the same topic, our origins, the secular scientists put before us a radically different view of how we got here. If we try to harmonize or compromise on the one issue, we will leave ourselves without any credibility to speak to the other. And this is exactly what happened with my friend. And the issue then is this. Can a theory of origins and creation, can it be separated from a, the worldview in which it's given? That is to say, are we able to separate and to harmonize with the worldview of the secular scientists without also imbibing the naturalism which produced that worldview? Can we ha hold to a some sort of old earth theory as a compromise with science and still teach things that are fundamentally uh, not contradictory with our own positions found in scripture? That's the question that we're going to be looking at this week. As I said last week, we looked at the idea of creation out of nothing, saying this is what the very first verse of Genesis teaches. And here we're going to look particularly at the question does Genesis 1 teach that God created in six ordinary days? Did God create in the space of six days? And I'll be arguing this morning that God, the scriptures do in fact teach that in the beginning, God did create all things in the space of six days. 
according with the language of our catechism, that God created all things out of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days, and all very good. So, after this week, we'll look more particularly at what happens in the individual days, and this will be this will set us up. So we'll be looking generally at all six days and looking at what's being taught. So we'll look first at, I'll give some arguments for why I think that this chapter in the Bible is teaching uh, a young earth, that these are ordinary days. We'll look also at some of the problems with some of the other views, and then we'll look at why this is important. So this is that's sort of the way we'll, we'll be working this morning. We'll look at the arguments for understanding days as normal days, then the problems with the other views, and then the reasons why this is important. So why is it that we would say that Genesis chapter 1 is teaching that there are six ordinary days, that the days which are given to us are just the normal kinds of days that we that we would acknowledge using our own language, like days of the week, that sort of thing? Well, first, that there is, in fact, a definition of day given in the very first day of creation in verses 3 to 5. Notice in verse 5, there's a separation after God says, let there be light. There is uh, then a division of the light from the darkness. And then there is the period of light, the light, which is called day, and the darkness is called night. So here now in the context of Genesis 1, if we want to know what does Moses mean by day, he appears to mean that there is a period of light and then there is a period of darkness. And the word day in Hebrew has the same sort of flexibility that we have in our own English usage of day, where we can mean day is in daylight as opposed to darkness, and also day is in a full 24-hour period. But notice here, day has the connotation of a normal sense of being a period of light. Then secondly, notice that as the first day ends and as all of the days end, it says that there was evening and morning, and these then become the parameters for each of the days. There was evening, and then there was morning the first day. Evening implies the end of a period of light, and then morning implies the end of the period of darkness. The period of light, which God had already called day, ends. The period of, of, of darkness, which God had called night, ends. And this is defined as the first day. There's no reason to think that it means anything other than an ordinary day. In addition, all throughout the text, we have this sequence of days. There is first the first day, then the second day, then the third day, and so on and so forth. And it's been noted by a number of people that in the Hebrew language, as we would expect even in our own language, that whenever day is listed in this sort of sequence, it always, without any exception, refers to simply an ordinary day. All these things are indications within the text itself that Moses means for us to understand that by first day, second day, third day, these mean ordinary, literal days. In addition, notice what God does on day four in particular. Day four is used by many to object to uh, to the idea of ordinary length of days. How could there be a solar day before the sun? How could days one, two, and three be a solar day when there was no sun? And that's the objection that's made. But notice day four actually gives us probably the clearest indication in all of Genesis chapter one of what Moses means by day. What do we, why, why was it that God made the sun, the moon, and the stars? Notice what God says. Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens 
to divide the day from the night. The purpose of the day in the of the sun and the moon, the stars, in the context of Genesis 1 is to mark off what a day is. And let there be for signs, for seasons, for days, and for years. How, how could it really be possible that Moses would indicate that God made the sun in order to indicate what a day was, and then at least in days 4, 5, and 6, that we would not think that that sun, which is used to mark the days, is actually being used to mark the days, that somehow days would mean something other than a sun-marked day. Could that, could that really be possible in the context of what Moses is saying? Now, as I've said, there are objections that are made. How is it that days one, two, and three could be solar days? In some sense, we, we can admit they're not solar days. The sun's not there. However, they are days which are exactly the same length as days four, five, and six. If, if the sun marks off days four, five, and six as being ordinary days, then surely days one, two, and three had to be the exact same length. Now, how would we know that? This is a bit of a, a, a comment related to science. I don't want to make too many of those, this is, but this is not something that's very difficult. But the length of a day is not determined by the position of the sun or the movement of the sun. It's determined by the spin of the earth. If, the, if days four, five, and six are 24 hours on the basis of the earth spinning, then unless we can say that the earth changed its speed of spinning on days one, two, and three, then the earth is ex- the days are actually exactly the same length. The, the, the kind of light which the earth saw because of its spin does not have anything to do with the length of days. As long as the earth would have maintained its normal spinning from days one to days six, the days had to have been exactly the same length. So for all of these reasons, we can clearly see that Moses intends us to understand from Genesis 1 itself the indications within the text itself that these are, in fact, ordinary days. And because of that, then, the position that we must take when we are challenged on this is that the scriptures are, in fact, teaching something fundamentally different in terms of how we were created. And even the other parts of scripture speak in the same way. Note, if you know in the way that uh Moses records the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. You'll know that in the Fourth Commandment, this creation week is set as the pattern for our own rest on the Sabbath. In six days, the Lord created the heavens and the earth, and he rested on the seventh day, and therefore you also are to work for six days and to rest on the seventh. Now, that parallelism is is at best weakened if we do not affirm that these were six ordinary days, and there's no indication in Exodus chapter 20 that anything else is meant. It's there's simply the parallel, the parallelism is given. It's meant to be perfectly convincing as a pattern which you are to follow. And then another place in scripture which is important for us to consider that bears witness to this is the passage which we read earlier in Matthew chapter 19. You may have been wondering why we were reading a passage on, on marriage and divorce for a sermon related to creation. But notice when Christ is arguing his position in term in terms of what is acceptable what's an acceptable reason for divorce he goes all the way back to the creation of man and woman and he says that god made them in the beginning to be male and female that's he's locating the creation of man as being at the beginning now if you could just imagine if you could make like a mental timeline in in your mind and imagine that you have on 
a span of 6,000 years, going all the way back to 4,000 BC, going from 4,000 BC all the way to the present, you were to mark on the timeline where it would be that God created man in that scheme. It would have to be at the very, very beginning, right? He declared him on the sixth day, not very far into the process. If you were to have the same mental timeline, but but have the time sequence be based upon the secular view of things, 13 billion years, right? But then man was created maybe 100,000 years ago on this on this view. You, you can even, I even give you a million years. So let's say a million years ago, it's way earlier than any of uh, uh, what any of the, of the scientists are saying. But let's say a million years ago, uh, man was created. And you compare that to 13 billion. Would it be right to say on the timeline, if you mark down where that 1 million is, would it be right to say that God created man in the beginning? Wouldn't it be more proper to say, if that were the case, that God actually created man at the end? There's, it's really, it, you would, if you were marking on the timeline, you'd have to put it on the very, very end. There would be no space between the end and your mark if you compare 1 million with 13 billion. And so for all of these reasons, within the text itself, within the testimony of Scripture, there's no hint or indication of anything other than that God created the world in six regular, ordinary days. And this was known to the church. There really was no, um, another weakness, a weakness particularly of any of the other views, is that there was, there was no other old earth view. There were no old earth views before about the 16 or 1700s. They were completely unknown in the history of the church. And this is because it's just the natural way to read the scriptures is just that there's, there is a young earth. And if that's the case, if there was no, if nobody was able to understand Genesis 1 and think that it teaches that, there, that the earth is 4 billion years old, the universe is 13 billion years old, if nobody was able to understand that in all the history of the church until the secular scientists come along and tell us that the earth is actually older and they help us to understand our own scriptures, and would it, would it be right to say that this, could we possibly say that the scriptures are clear if we needed that aid from the secular scientists in order to understand what appears to be a very, very simple narrative given for, for the sake of the edification of the church. This is the, this is the great problem. The other views, are, they uh, in many regards are not clear. There's no way that we could come to the views unless we already had some sort of predisposition from scientific uh, from scientific formulations saying that the earth was old and the evidence, the history bears this out. There were no old earth views before the secular scientists told us that the earth was so old. And because of that, because it's so difficult as we move now into the reason, some of the objections against the old earth views, it's very difficult to get to an understanding of the old earth with um, with simply Genesis 1 in mind. It's very difficult to see how the words could mean that. And we know we see that from the proliferation of views. There are new views coming out all the time, even in this generation. Even within the past 10 years, there have been new attempts to understand the earth as being old with uh, different ways. And when we look at that, we, we look at the Bible and we, Genesis 1 in particular, and we say, is it really, it's really very difficult. How How could I possibly understand it Genesis 1 is meaning that if I didn't have this very sophisticated, complex explanation that would tell me that Genesis 1, in fact, means that. 
there was a, a man when we were um, on staff with Campus Crusade who uh, was admitting this. He did not believe that the that the earth was was young. He held to an old earth position. He was a Christian, and he was admitting that he was having a very hard time with thinking that Moses's writings were inerrant because he did not really see how all the details could be squared with an old earth. He did not believe that Genesis 1 was teaching that the earth was young. Yet when he looked at the the different old earth positions, he said, you know, it's really very complicated and it's actually hard to see that Moses really intended to teach things that would harmonize with what is being said right now from the secular scientists. And if I accept what the secular scientists are saying, you know, it's really hard for me to be able to say that Moses's writings are in fact inerrant. That was a struggle that he had. It was a very real struggle. And this is really the sort of uh, one of the main problems that we find with the old earth positions. They are not clear. They do not, um, they are not consistent with our teaching that the scriptures are clear. They've not been given to confuse us. Any child who would read through Genesis 1 without any aid of anyone else could very easily think that he understands the text and they would all, and he would conclude, anyone would conclude that God made the world in six ordinary days. And so one of the problems with the Old Earth view is the clarity of Scripture. Uh, all of the views are very confusing. They're very difficult to articulate. They're very difficult to defend. And they do not appear to come from the text in a way that's, at least not in a way that's easy. Another problem with the Old Earth views is the argument of the slippery slope. Now, it's sometimes... Um, we have to be careful not to be unfair with people and using the slippery slope argument. However, there's already evidence of what happens when people uh, embrace an old earth view of creation. The tendency is also to eventually deny a global flood. Those two things are very much connected. And why is it that those two things are connected? The reason is because the same evidence that leads one to think that the earth is old, which every old earth view will take, except in one way or another, is the same evidence which will end up denying that there is a global flood. The secular scientists say, well, the earth is 4 billion years old, and there's no evidence of a, of a global flood uh, in any of the geological record. And surely we would see it if God had covered the entire world with water. And so because of that, there's no evidence. Uh, there's no evidence of it. Therefore, it didn't happen. And once you accept the age of the Earth on the basis of the scientific findings, then you also are led to accept the other conclusion, which is that there is no evidence of a flood either. The one leads to another. And typically, the way Christians have explained the evidence for for the flood in the the geological record is that what the secular scientists think is indicating millions of years is actually just indicating Noah's flood. The fossils that are, that are in the earth, in all those layers, they didn't get there over millions of years, but they got there when God flooded the world and covered it with water. What's the, the evidence of the flood in, in the natural world? Well, it's things like all of the Grand Canyon. All of it is pointing to the reality that God did destroy the world in a flood. And once you accept the scientific community's theories about the layers of the Grand Canyon, you also have to deny the evidence for the flood as well. And this has been played out. One prominent Old Testament scholar who would be considered conservative in other areas actually did this. He denied that the flood was 
was covered the entire world. And he was even willing to say that God may have caused the waters to stand straight up and down and make it local. And, and so that he could still destroy the entire world in terms of killing every single man, except for Noah and his family. But that yet the flood did not actually cover the world. He was willing to go that far because of his commitment to respecting the findings of the secular scientists with respect to geology. Now, the flood is clearly in the scriptures meant to be universal. It was a supernatural act of God. And if we give up the supernaturalism of creation and then give up the supernaturalism of the flood, we are on a very bad trajectory. All of Genesis 1 through 11 is foundational for understanding the rest of the Bible. And we cannot think that giving up the supernaturalism of those chapters will lead to anything positive in, in our defense of the gospel. But another reason why the old earth views are problematic is that it, they do not preserve the, the uniqueness of creation. In all of the views, there is some sense of blending the idea of creation with providence to the point which it, to which they are indistinguishable. So what do I mean by that? Well, if you embrace an older view of creation, then the mountains got here by natural processes, the same which God is using even now to maybe raise the mountains a couple inches or to drop them a few inches year after year and whatever else. The same natural processes for creation are the same ones for providence, which means that creation is not really creation. It's not any different than providence. God simply used the exact same things that he does now. The problem is, is that everywhere in the scriptures, God demands that we praise him for his special act of creation. Creation is not characterized in the Bible as being just like providence. It is a perfectly distinct act. Even as we sung earlier, it's God who speaks forth his word, commands the mountains to come to their height, and then commands them to stop. He commands the waters to go to their place and they go to their place. It's a, it's a unique act which God does, which is lost in every single or old earth view. Now think about this. We, Calvin has said, as I mentioned in the beginning, we know God in two ways, as creator and redeemer. Here, there is a great obscuring of our understanding of God as creator, as we are reduced to thinking that these supernatural acts were simply other natural they're they're not supernatural at all but they're rather just the natural acts of god that he's always done it's a similar sort of thing then to when people object to uh the parting of the red sea or the parting of the jordan in the days of joshua they'll try to explain how you know there is um there is flooding and then you know the the waters naturally recede and so god just timed it perfectly so that this natural occurrence would enable the israelites to walk through the seas well, why, why do we have to resort to that? The Bible doesn't seem to indicate anything like that. The, the purpose of those chapters in, in Exodus is to show that God is absolutely in control of his creation and that the parting of the Red Sea and the parting of the Jordan are supernatural acts. And this is exactly the way creation is characterized as well. Why would we have to resort to trying to explain the height of the, of the mountains through natural processes or the appearance of the stars? The scriptures do not teach that they came about by natural processes. God spoke them into existence. He placed them immediately in their place in a way that was not repeatable. It's not a repeatable act. And so there, this whole thing is lost with every older view as well. 
And the last thing I'll say, that another problem with uh, all of the Old Earth views is at best there is a lack of clarity with regard to death before the fall. Was there death before man fell? Now, again, I say at best, there may be some that try to say, well, um, you know, I, I think Adam was created specially on day six and it was, you know, about 100,000 years ago or, or whatever. But the problem is, is that, again, the, the same scientific evidence that we're trying to harmonize with that leads us to believe that the earth is so old is a record of nothing but death. Now, we would say that that record is perfectly consistent with the biblical record because it is a record of the flood. And that's the, the reason it's there. It's to be a record of death, of God's judgment. But this didn't, this didn't happen before the fall, but after the fall. If you say that all of that, those rock layers teach an old earth, then you have to say that it also teaches death before the fall because there is only a record of death in the fossils. Now, why would this be a problem if there's death before the fall? Well, the scriptures are very clear that death is not natural to this world. It's not actually a, na- a natural thing. It is a judicial sentence against the world because of sin. And it entered into this world through the sin of Adam. Now, if we lose that death is a judicial sentence of God, then how is it then that Christ's death could serve as a judicial sentence and Christ's resurrection serve as a testimony to life? If we didn't all die in Adam... Can we really all be made alive in Christ? If death didn't come in through Adam, through his sin, can really life come in through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? In the scriptures, these two things are are, um, everywhere taught to be parallel, particularly in Romans chapter 5, as death came in through the one man. So uh, even so much more has grace superabounded in the one man, Jesus Christ. And as one act of righteousness caused, caused the condemnation for all men, so one act of justification So one act of righteousness brings the justification of life to all men. If we teach that death happened before the fall, we are in danger of losing the doctrine of salvation itself. Now, I recognize that there have been many great Christians who have held to views which are different than what I'm trying to teach. And I can thankfully say that in my view, I think a lot of great men who are um, better than I am in many, many ways have held these views and what I would say is held them inconsistently have held, and have held forth the gospel in a way that's clear and edifying to other people. But nevertheless, this is the trajectory of these kinds of views and these are uh, the problems with all the views and where that they lead. So if we if we just, uh, as we're going in now to the reasons of why this is important, we, we can rehearse them. Death before the fall, the clarity of the scriptures, the slippery slope, particularly with the flood. And particularly then, we see that there is always a problem whenever we try to compromise and synthesize our worldview, which comes from the scriptures, with the worldview of the unbeliever. And in this way, this particular controversy, even though it it plays itself out with different details, it's still fundamentally the same as the modernist controversy earlier in the 20th century, which produced our own denomination. It's fundamentally the same as the women's ordination question and even the homosexuality question. You have a a portion of scripture, which is very, very clear, which this church has always understood to be a certain way, 
you have outside pressure on the church to adopt a view that will harmonize with the view of the culture. That's what we have in the modernist controversy. Will we, shouldn't we not, should we not adopt and adapt our views to the views of the liberal Christians? Or with the women's ordination, shouldn't we not recognize that that these these teachings of in the Bible are a bit outdated? And shouldn't we recognize that we've progressed in terms of our views of of what women can do in this world? And isn't isn't a denial of homosexuality isn't that just an an old thing that we ought to to give up? There is a pressure from the outside, and the church then has the the choice: Will we stand firm on the clear teaching of Scripture as the church has always understood it, or will we change our views in order to accommodate? the pressure of those on the outside. Now, those other issues are more in the realm of the, of the moral, and this issue is more in the realm of the scientific. But even so, notice, it is fundamentally the same sort of thing. Will we try to compromise in order to tell the, the, the unbeliever that he's really not that far off? He's not that far off with the women's ordination thing. He's not that far off with the homosexuality. He's not that far off with the modernist thing. He, will we tell him he's not that far off with his view of origins? He just has to be able to recognize that it's God that initiated it. Or will we say that the Bible actually teaches something fundamentally different? Whenever we try to harmonize, we will always run into problems. There was a, a debate between a Christian and an unbeliever, an atheist, a very famous one, very famous atheist with a very famous Christian ap- uh, apologist, uh, Hitchens versus William Lade Craig. I don't know if you if you're familiar with the debate. They it was uh, it was held at a university uh, several years ago related to one of Hitchens's new books about atheism, and one of the arguments which Hitchens made against Craig was, isn't it sad? Isn't how could you believe in a god who would, in his process of creation, allow so much death and suffering for millions and billions of years? just to get to a few thousand important years at the very tail end of the existence of the universe. isn't How could you believe in a God who would choose to create in such a way with all of that suffering and death, cancer, and all of these things, that that would be the method that he would create? And now it was a, 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 an objection that was very, very difficult for Craig uh, to answer. He had other you know, decent arguments on his side, but um, it's, a, it's a question that we have to ask. Whenever, whenever we harmonize with the, the worldview of the unbeliever, can we actually s- describe a worldview that is internally consistent? And the answer, I think, is clearly no. That objection is a very strong and valid objection if you believe that the earth is old. If the earth is young, well, we say, well, God didn't create that way. He created all things good. There was no inefficiency. There was no death. There was no process. God spoke it all into being, and he showed his great power and glory by making it very, very good without any of these things which are, uh, which are objected against us. But, the, but it, this illustrates the problem of har- trying to harmonize these kinds of views. And the last thing I'll say in terms of the reasons why this is important is a reason that we may call doxological, a word related to praise. The praise of God. This is really the main thing. God demands our praise for him, both for creation and redemption. And creation, we praise him for the work of creation as, in, as a supernatural 
non-repeatable act of God, which is special, like the parting of the Red Sea. There was a time when I was in China, and I was thinking about these things and and was looking at the mountains. And in China, there are some absolutely gorgeous and beautiful mountains. And I was just thinking about the wonder of it. As you look at those mountains and you think, my God spoke those mountains into being. He rose them up in a moment and put them exactly where they are to show forth his glory. And that act of doing that in such, in such a, a small space of time as a supernatural act really did cause my heart just to rise in thanksgiving and praise to God. Very similar, I think, to Psalm 104, where there's just a, just an outflow of praise. And this, I think, is the reason. Once I, once I had that experience, I thought, you know, I'm never going to go back on this particular doctrine. I've seen the glory of it. There is a difference. God, is, God wants us to praise him for the supernatural act of creation. And this is lost when we give in to any of the old earth views. So, as we talked about last week, Moses puts forward the first verse of creation as an expression of a worldview which is fundamentally different, not similar to the worldview of everyone that's around them. They did not believe that God created all things out of nothing. Moses says, in the beginning, not that there were things, but God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the same way that Moses wrote those words in order to contradict, not compromise, contradict the worldview that was current among all the pagans which were surrounding him, so in the same way, we need to be firm and to put forth our understanding of Genesis 1 to show that the the worldview of the secularists in terms of origins is fundamentally flawed. It's not similar. It is fundamentally different. God created the world in the space of six days, as the church has understood for over a thousand years. We have these two aspects of knowing God as creator and redeemer. May God grant us the grace to know him well, not only as redeemer, but even as our creator. Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we do think on these things, we do pray, O oh Lord, that you would open up our eyes to see the glory which you have shown to us in your creation. And help us, Lord, even to believe, even when it's not popular, even when the world teaches something different. And Lord, we do pray that you would open up the eyes of the world, that they might see that you are the God who has created in a supernatural way, and that any kind of attempt to understand origins with naturalistic processes, is inherently doomed to fail because the world could not be here in that way. We know it to be true. It is on the surface of it very, very obvious. And so, Lord, we we ask that you would help us to stand firm with these things and you would even grant grace to your church to recover this doctrine and that we would stand firm to the praise of your glory. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit us at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F dot com. If you'd like to worship with us on Sunday, our service times are 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m.